This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to Inside Marketing. This week we're going to talk about TV and whether TV's had a good COVID. And we'll also look at the trends and things that are coming down the line on TV. I'm joined today by Nigel Wally, who is MD of Media Consultancy Decipher. Welcome, Nigel. Welcome, hello. And I'm also joined by Jill McGrath, who is CEO of TAM Ireland. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Dave. Right, we will kick off. Nigel, you wrote an article that's in today's Irish Times and it's an interesting title. It is TV having a good pandemic. I immediately thought, yeah, of course it is having a great pandemic, I would have thought, because everyone's stuck in. But it actually, it was quite interesting points. It wasn't quite as I expected it was going to be. So, And I think one of the things I liked about it was, we can touch on this later on, is it kind of busts a couple of myths. So this idea that TV is dead, no one's watching TV, which I'm amazed I still hear quite a lot. You said there's no evidence to back that up. And also the evidence suggests that it's actually performing really, really well. So I like that angle on it. But I guess the question I had, first of all, was how you answer that question depends on how you define watching TV, because it could be watching the box in the corner of the room or it could be watching television content on any device. So let's kick off there. What's your view on that? What does the phrase watching TV mean to you? Uh, it's a great question. Realistically, the answer's changed over the years. There was a time when we watching television just meant watching television channels. So turning on you know, RTE and watching a live channel as it, as it came through the aerial. And um, clearly, you know, the last 20 years, all sorts of other things have appeared. The ability to record telly on your box, the ability to watch on demand on your telly or on your phone. So all of those things are coming to play. And I, I literally have spent hours talking about this question with the industry. We've all settled on this very broad definition. If the content you're watching is professionally made content by a television company, mm -hmm. then we're defining that as watching telly, whether you're watching on your phone in the garden or on a 65-inch flat screen in the lounge, if you're watching something professionally made, and that, that distinction is, is kind of important. If you're watching cats on a skateboard on YouTube on your phone, it doesn't feel like you're watching telly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, so we're, we're kind of landing on that distinction. However, if you ask me again in a couple of years' time, I'll probably have a different definition by that point because I suddenly realised I'm starting to watch more and more YouTube on the telly in my lounge. Yeah. So come back to me in two years' time and I'll give you a totally different answer. All right. Well, that's good. I like that because the answer is right for today and I'm okay with that. I change my mind all the time as well and things, so that's fine. I think in, in when we ask that question or when you unpack that question, the more appropriate question is really in there is like, can what we call traditional TV channels, can they survive in this new world of content on demand and increased competition? So I think we'll get into that in a, in a bit more detail in a moment, but like really the problem that they have to overcome is that, you know, in lockdown, there was no sport uh, and the one hand you might say was great because lots of people tuned into TV because they had little else to do, but there was no sport that, you know, um, they ran out of kind of episodes of programs, the production pipeline had dried up a little bit and people got tired of daily COVID briefings. So on the one hand, it should have been great for TV, but maybe at a time, I think you put in the article at a time when, when people really needed their TV stations, they were kind of light on content. So has it been good for TV generally or not? And Jill, you can come in after that. But Nigel, do you think it's been good for TV? Yeah, in that kind of broad abstract definition of TV, it's been fabulous. We've had nothing else to do apart from things we probably can't talk about on a podcast. And so we've all been consuming loads more than we have, but it's undermined some of the old certainties. So we've been worried for a while about the shift from broadcast channels into on demand and whether it was good or bad. And this COVID has clearly increased that. The um, And the poor broadcast channels, as you mentioned, struggle because some of those absolute bankers that will always drive a big audience disappeared so mm -hmm. you know football disappeared overnight we, it just wasn't there and, we, and that left a, um, a very difficult set of holes in the schedules 
we have a broadcast channels all over um, Europe desperately trying to find what to put in the point where uh, there, there was football previously. So they've had a scheduling problem, so they've had to go and dredge up um, repeats and all sorts of things to stick in the, in the schedules. And at the same time, as you flagged up, we, we've got these new players popping up. And then in some markets around Europe, you know, Disney launched just at the beginning of pandemic. It was genius. Whoever, whoever at Disney planned to launch a bob service just before a global pandemic should, should be promoted. It was a genius piece of marketing. Um, so I'm sure they're, they're claiming responsibility for it. Yeah, maybe quite. Just got lucky. Jill, how's TV been in COVID? What are we seeing? Has it been strong? Yeah, we've we've seen really strong viewing figures. It's um, you know, I mean, certainly at the at the very start, it was phenomenal. Uh, but it maintained a high level. So, sure, in March we were seeing programs that were like particularly around news, the highest viewing in, in over a decade. But overall, if you kind of look at viewing from say March to the end of May, beginning of March to the end of May, it's up about seven percent. So. It's definitely been really good for TV mm. and really good across all audiences. And that's despite all the challenges that, that Nigel has alluded to there. You know, I mean, if, if we had been told in March, that, that at the beginning of March, that sport was just going to be pulled and yet TV viewing was going to go up, um, I don't think anyone would have believed that. But I think, you know, TV, it's certainly found a new place in people's hearts, you know, yeah. in terms of the trustworthiness of it. Uh, the believability of it, and all of the innovations that had to happen mm. because content wasn't been produced in the way that it normally would be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, ha- it has been good for TV. It's been good for all viewing, um, yeah, it's, for TV I mean, in particular. I, I yeah. think it's been, it's, been, it's been good to everybody. But, like, maybe, and I think, we, Nigel, we, we, you touched on this, so because we had little else to do, let's be honest, there were, like, there were months where you weren't even supposed to be going out, weren't there? so you literally had nothing else to do. So we saw a spike in all media. But actually with, with lack of sport on TV, I guess it probably was a really good time for Netflix or Amazon. Or I suppose, well, Nigel, the question is, maybe it was probably a good time for Netflix and Amazon. But I know I found that I ran out of things to watch because I have portion control issues with content as well. I just get stuck into things. So I found that they were exposure to a, a poor back catalogue of stuff. I'm struggling for stuff to watch now because I was locked in for so for much time. So has it been an overall good? Or do you think it's a problem with Netflix and Amazon that a lot of people are, I'm finished Netflix now. I've seen everything I want. <laughs> I think it is a problem for all of them. And, and clearly the ones with the bigger back catalogue are, are suffering less. And um, I mentioned Disney earlier on. Um, and it seemed like a great idea, you know, having launched this in the beginning of the pandemic, it suddenly became very clear to lots of people that there just isn't much stuff in there. Netflix is better because it's got this, you know, vast back catalogue, but as you um, pointed out, people have really hoovered their way around it now um, and are starting to run out of things to watch. So there's this desperate need to pull in new commissions and and new new archive from somewhere into, into things like Netflix. The, um, because you know you can have twenty thousand titles and, and nothing you want to watch, and that's not a great service. Yeah. So we, we're expecting we, we can't see the numbers yet, but we're expecting to see some churn off from um, the, the the pay subscription VOD suppliers like mm. Netflix yeah. and, uh, and Amazon Prime because people's budgets are going to be tight. You know we we haven't really felt the the, the the nasty teeth of the recession yet. Yeah. It, it's likely people are going to be tightening the purse strings for the rest of the year. Uh, and if they're not getting content out of the ones they're paying for, then then it's like we're we, we going to see some churn off in subscriptions. So. Yeah, it's a funny model, and we'll touch on it in a minute. That like the, the whole avoid ad avoidance, the user experience trumps everything. We'll touch on that in a minute. Um, I mean, when we think about 
the way life has gone. Jill, I've got to start with you on this. When we think about the way life has gone, so I think we look back and the idea of or someone in RTE and in Donnybrook deciding that I have to watch something when they want me to watch it will seem ludicrous like a thing of folklore in the future when we look back at it. And and the world is moving, so Netflix is, has kind of come in and disrupted that model. But there is something really nice about consuming things at the same time as everyone else. So there's that kind of talkability factor with things. So while I think it's great that content is released all at the same time, like a Netflix model, you do miss that sense of um, shared viewing. I don't mean watching it at the same time in the same room as somebody. I just mean knowing that other people are experiencing it at the same time. So I think it was making a murder when I binge watched the whole thing literally in a day. And I couldn't talk about it for the next two months because everyone said, oh, I'm only on episode five, episode six. And I kind of just lost that momentum, that talkability. So... I can see the benefits of both. But like when we think about those two different models, the idea of somebody in RT deciding what I watch or releasing everything on demand, what do you think the future is? Because I think that Netflix model is a bit tricky because people can come in, binge watch for, you know, you pay for a month, you trial it and it's cheap for a month. You watch as much as you can and then you just drop out again. That's not a brilliant business model. Well, I don't know how sticky the customers are, but it's not a great business, high risk. So do you think the future, Jill, is going to be one of a kind of hybrid between those two opposites or like is in your TV... It, it's just a case of when it will go away, with the exception of live, and that might be a stream. That's a long question, but um, what do you think the future is? <laughs> that is a long question, and and I think that we, I suppose, uh, and you've touched on a, on a lot of things there. So yes, of course, that you know Netflix has some real big hitters, and you're watching it, and then, but as you say, again, you can't talk about it to any of your friends, and you lose out there. Because if you look at the amount of conversations there are around TV with your mates, it's actually huge because it's around sport. It's also around the drama. It's around the things like normal people, which was just phenomenal over COVID, both from a live TV point of view and also from an on-demand because what uh, what 15-year-old is going to watch that with their parents in the room? But if we look at the performance of live TV throughout all of everything that's gone on and all of the changes that have been going on over the last decade and more, still it is accounts for 84% of all TV viewing. Yeah. So people love live TV. And yes, of course, sport makes up quite a bit of that. News and current affairs makes up a lot of that. But so too do those big ticket dramas and those kind of shared viewing experiences, the types of programs that you can watch with the whole family are always really important and tend to be live. You know, the kind of light entertainment and even soaps, Mm, when they get into those strong storylines, you want to watch them uh, when they go out because you want to be part of the story. So I definitely think live TV is here to stay as a very strong part of our our viewing Mm. portfolio, if you like. But sure, On Demand has a very strong place in there too. But live TV is, you know, has a huge foothold that I don't believe is going anywhere fast. Yeah, it's hard. It'll never go away completely. But I think more and more will shift to On Demand. We think about Netflix. I mentioned this a second ago. I don't know, personally, from what I read, they will... They're very much saying never will they move to an ad-funded model. It would make sense if they did ad-funded or even a hybrid model. But like Reed Hastings has said, as long as he's in, in control, they will not move to that, despite whatever pressure investors put on them. Like it'd be massive. It'd just turn on a huge revenue tap for them. But in their view, user experience is more important than dollars. I'm not sure their investors would have the same view. But like, how long can they not scratch that itch, I guess? Why don't they do it? It's a great question. In the beginning of Reed Hastings' statement there, you know, he said as long as he's in control. 
Uh, and I think that those who are looking at Netflix are, are asking a broader question about whether it's got a, a long life ahead of it as a standalone company. It looks like an organization that over time will get wrapped up into one of the bigger giants. Right, we, yeah. we've, we've made a personal bet on Google buying it. Right. Because Google is one is one of the few of the, the major global giants that doesn't have a premium content play. Yeah. Um, and so realistically, I think in the short term, their, 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 their subscription model without advertising will stay in place. But it looks more and more likely that they're an acquisition target for someone else. And, then, right. and when the acquisition happens, then right. there's a chance to, to build in extra revenue streams. I don't think it's a case of changing the core. I suspect there will yeah. always be a very strong SBOD advertising free core to what yeah. they're doing. But the ability to create a three tier and an ad tier will be too tempting for somebody who's come in and bought them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Like it's it's literally just say no to piles of cash that you could be getting and just and, and while Reed Hastings may have that view, he might be a purist in terms of the user experience. Yeah, you're right. I think I think the important thing is while he's in control, Netflix, it's a great platform. And like there's a couple of different battles going on. I sometimes I mean every industry has a tough I sometimes really feel sorry for broadcasters because it's hard enough like RTE have to fight against Virgin. That's tough. But now they face bigger rivals. There's more channels coming in from the UK. And now they face Netflix and Amazon, and I know they say that they VOD platforms and they're actually are in that space, but actually they're not. They're brutal user experience. User experience is horrible in some of those things. Like so, even on some of the players, if you stop watching something, you got to go back and do it from the start. If you pause it, you get loads of ads thrown in the middle of it. It doesn't have a proper recommendation engine because it's not logged in users. Like it's a it's a really bad. Like it's a really poor offering when you compare it to Netflix, which is just so slick. And even Sky dipping out of something on TV, picking it up seamlessly on on your tablet. Do you think that the current VOD, the broadcaster VOD, BVOD offering is strong or should they do this properly? It feels like they just kind of said, oh yeah, look, we have to do it. Let's lash a bit of content on that website over there and let's just say it's VOD. It's terrible though. Who wants to take that one? Go, Nigel. No, you, you're laughing. You can take that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, knew, I knew it was coming to me and I'm just sitting here thinking about how many friends in Dublin I'm going to I'm gonna annoy the no one, li- no, no one listens to this. It's grand. Geraldine O'Leary won't be listening to this. Don't worry. And I, uh, all of their faces are flashing in front of my eyes now as I, as I speak. I, I think you need to separate out the idea of B-Bod from the execution. There are very few broadcasters around Europe who've done a, a, a good uh, B-Bod execution. Do you see the way I, I, I kind of it away from anything precise there. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think broadcasters have had a good record with tech, apart from some odd ones, so like Major League Baseball in the US has, has done a great job. And, and so, that, so at the moment, we're still waiting for some good tech implementations to show that actually there is a good idea behind it. But, but the thing I, I would flag up in that is that broadcast isn't a thing, just one standard thing, and VOD isn't a thing. What we're actually talking about are quite um, varied products. Yeah. So if we look at, I, I, this morning before coming on to the, the podcast, I was having an email exchange with somebody about the definition of BVOD, AVOD, and SVOD, uh, and OTT, and we probably wasted two hours of our life just trying to define yeah. all these things that are in it. So if you look at someone like RTE, they've got a very difficult job to do because they've got to deal with news, current affairs, entertainment programs like you know, The Late Late Show, as well as dramas and things. So what they're trying to do with their players is actually much more complex from a content point of view than someone like Netflix, who, who just cherry picks drama and, and movies and documentaries and, and cherry picks all the easy stuff and, and puts it out there as an archive. So their interfaces are great, but they've done a, they're doing a very simple thing. The broadcasters have got a more complex job to, to fairly represent 
the, the wide range of content that travels through a broadcast channel. Mm-hmm. And, and we always talk about shelf life. And if you look at what comes down the line on a broadcast channel, you've got things with a zero self, uh, shelf life, like news bulletins. You've got yeah. things with an incredibly short shelf life, like sports, yeah. um, as well as things like drama and, and soaps with a kind of medium to a long shelf life. So, so they've got actually a much harder job to do. Mm. Um, and they're doing it in a, in a culture where there, there is no expectation that you're meant to log into a broadcaster. So you know, yeah. people in our don't have a history of having an account with RTU. It's just part yeah, of yeah. The, the fabric of life. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, we're being told we have to log into something and it, it and, but not pay for it. So it feels slightly alien. So I, I, I try not to be hard on the broadcasters. I, I do think that in the long term, they're trying to do a much bigger, more complex thing than Netflix is. Um, yeah, and true. Netflix, as I say, has chosen to cherry pick a few things and do them really well. Uh, and it does, when you compare them head to head, it makes yeah. the broadcast look bad. But over the long term, I think we, we'll see some great things. I just don't understand why they don't just simply request um, logged in users. I mean, that's, I mean, if you want to watch it, if you, it's not, it's a small price to pay for everything that's on there, even if it's not a great user experience. Well, thanks for taking that one, Jill. I, I let you off on that one, but you're in the hot seat now. One of the big criticisms that um, on this old media versus new media de- debate is measurability. So TV, relatively speaking, I think has been the gold standard in old money in terms of measurement. But the model is not aging well, is, is probably the way I'd put it. So a couple of questions here. Sample sizes. Are the sample sizes big enough? Like, do, do we think that whatever one home representing 500, is that enough? Can you drill down that? How robust does that make niche audiences? And second of all, like I mentioned thing about, you know, having to click or register your presence in the room on a people meter. Given that we live in a world of connected TVs and, and things like that, surely there's a better way to measure this than that. It sounds really old fashioned. So Jill, take that one. So is there is the sample size big enough and is there not a better way of doing it? Sample size, yeah. For the audiences that are traded by TV, the sample sizes are is absolutely adequate. And in fact, we, we increased this year to a minimum sample of a thousand households every day, which is one of the most representative samples in, in Europe, actually. So from a sample size point of view, in terms of the audiences that are traded by the broadcasters, absolutely, it's there. It's always going to come under pressure, but it does provide enough robustness for the currency. In terms of how it's done, I can understand where your question is coming from, but I can tell you that throughout the world, everybody uses this model. The reason being that it is the most consistent, reliable, accountable, trusted and transparent type of measurement that's out there. And it's not for lack of looking at other means of measurement and indeed testing other ways of measuring. But this has been proven time and time and time again to be the most reliable and accurate and indeed, as I say, trusted form of measurement. That's not to say that we stand still by any means. And uh, in fact, we have just launched our streaming meter that is going into 300 households, about 260 of them are on the TV panel. And that is measuring all viewing across all devices in the home. Right. Okay. Um, So all streaming activity. So, and that will be, uh, that's working in conjunction with a new meter that's gone into the household. So it's not that we're, that we're standing still at all. I can understand the, from the outside looking in, what, how it could look quite antiquated. But believe me, I think the only market that uses the, the, um, uh, kind of personal meters where you're wearing wearable technology right. to measure your viewing is Canada. As far as I know, they're the only ones. And to be honest, I have seen the shortcomings of that. Yes, it's a different way of measuring. And mm. one might think that it, it must be better. 
uh, and certainly it, it captures out of home viewing. But compliance is a really big issue with it. Right. So you know, I think it's absolutely fit for purpose. And you're, uh, when, when it's all. I, I guess that's good. Where you're always looking at, at ways to kind of tweak it, and you know, we'll see what other markets do. Can, am I allowed to jump in on that? You are absolutely. Go ahead. You're going to say you're going to say it's not robust enough and it's nonsense, aren't you? <laughs> I know it's always fun when, when um, participants disagree violently, but um, I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to endorse uh, what Jill said, but add something on to the end. So um, I, I was sitting here nodding as, as Jill was talking about that because I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of, of TAM audience measurement, uh, and they, you know, they, the sample sizes are statistically robust for what they try to do. But the one caveat, which is more, more of kind of an addendum to, to that, is that if we look at how viewing has changed in the last 10, 15 years, uh, at the beginning of the period, it was very large audiences clustered around a small number of channels. Uh, and, and the TAM audience culture was built around measuring those. And, so, and, and TAM measurement is effectively a qualitative bit of research into the market. And, and it's very effective and it, and it does the job very well. And, and most importantly, it allows agencies and, and brand advertisers to, to agree on a currency and, and trade yeah. on it. Yeah. And now, what's happened to audiences in this broad definition of, of television watching that we defined at the beginning of the, the podcast is that we're seeing more and more smaller audiences, even down to single users uh, yeah. on other devices. And for the first time, we're talking about users of television as well as um, audiences of television. So, you know, there's a distinction between a family sitting on the sofa yeah. uh, at home um, watching a shared, big shared telly screen together versus someone sitting at a bus stop with their phone catching up on, on last night's soaps. But I, the way we look at it is that the television industry is adding in new and complementary measurement sets right. to, to build on, on the town audience. So it's not a case of throw out the old, we need a new one. Yeah. What we actually need is, is some extra tools where, that where appropriate, for those advertisers who want to do it or use it, gotcha, there, are, yeah. there are measurement tools and measurement data sets that fit some of these newer user groups around the core term. Yeah. So. Okay, right. I'll admit defeat on that one then. Fair enough. One of the things that, like, we talk a lot, a lot about trends and you talked a lot, you just mentioned there, Nigel, about kind of viewing content on your phone. So I want to talk about a trend that I've read a lot about recently. Um, I would, sorry, it's one of the things that I think this industry is a bit mad at. We love shiny new things and we get overly excited about new stuff. And we think everything that's old is no use and this brand new shiny thing over here. And we're, we're just, it kind of feels like an echo chamber quite off the, the marketing industry. So I'm going to talk about Quibi for a second. Now, when I read about Quibi, I just saw, it sounds a little bit like a, you know, I was joking, it's a pyramid scheme. This is too good to be true. Like this mid-form content, how did I not see this? You know, it's not long form and it's not two or three minutes. It's 10 minutes. It's a brand new genre and it's fit for mobile. It sounded great. Then I read, they're sold out of ads. You know, you cannot get an ad. They've, they've sold all their inventory. And I'm going, this is incredible. And then we here we are two months in and if the Wall Street Journal is to be believed, it's gone disastrously for them. It, they are like, way, they're pacing at, like I think they plan to have 7.2 million users by the end of the year. They're pacing at about 2 million. They look like they're going to be on to deliver. Most of them are on free. So it just seems like now, and hindsight's a great thing, it seems like it's a bad idea. But I read about some of the shows as well, like they seemed like nonsense, the whole thing. There was a documentary about 
luxury homes for dogs called Barkitecture. Right, I don't know if you know Alan Partridge, but it's smacked to that episode where he's throwing everything at the head of BBC, you know, making it up on the spot. This is a real thing. So my question is, it was this just a big vanity project? Was this private equity companies, you know, falling over themselves to pile into the next big thing, thinking they'd struck gold? Or actually, was it, is it a brilliant idea, but just the lack of commuting in the world has killed it? I'm willing to jump in and start on with that. Uh, yeah. Because um, I stand by my my record as seen on Twitter on this one. I thought it was a stupid idea to start with. And it just looked like, it, it's kind of the idea that your dad comes up with um, in response to something he's seen on the telly. There was a bunch <laughs> of old-time media execs who who thought, yeah. throw a billion quid at something, and, and they could invent a new media. And, and to me, it, it was destined to be a disaster from the start. And then you know it's going wrong when they start announcing um, that you can now watch Quibi on the big screen. You know, the whole point of it yeah. is meant for the small screen. So desperately just trying to get some audiences. So now we've got this ridiculous situation of this terrible content that looks crap on a small screen. And they're saying, oh, don't worry, you can you can put it up on the big screen. I don't want it on the big screen. Yeah. It looks crap on the phone. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so it, it was a stupid idea from the start. Yeah, I agree. Good deal. Mm. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. I think it was just never, never the right idea. It sounded like something that they all sat around a table and came up with this great idea. Mm. Yeah. Really. I can see, you can see, you can see <laughs> how really it happens. Yeah, you can see it going, do you know what? People's attention spans getting shorter. Young people don't want to watch telly. I know. It's just, yeah, like it just really reminded me of that Alan Partridge episode. Um, on young people, here's an interesting one. Get your view on this one. I hear all the time, I talk to broadcasters and this battle of trying to push water uphill, of trying to bring the youth back to TV, right? I, my advice to them would be, forget about them, give up on them. There's no point in trying to make a channel that appeals to another 25 audience because there's just no point. It never worked. It won't work. They're gone. But they're not going to be gone forever. If I was on a TV station, I would say, like I think Orchie's a fine business. They can make great profit. i just give up on those people. Let them go off and watch 13 Reasons Why Not and teen dramas as much as they want. And then when they mature a little bit, they're going to want to watch Irish content. They're going to want to watch news. They're going to want to watch current affairs. So what do you think about that? Should we just accept that they're gone and they won't be back instead of trying to chase these people? Whoever wants can take that one. Okay, I've been in this business for probably longer than, you, than you've been on this earth. I, I doubt it. The under 25s have always been an attractive audience for marketers. They absolutely love them, but they've always played hard to get. They've always been so fickle and so difficult to get with any media. But I think we've got to put our marketing hats on here and think about long-termism. It's not just about the winning overnight. It is also about the winning over time and building a relationship with a younger audience. And, you know, they do spend an hour a day with TV the under 25s. Yeah. That's not nothing. And I do think that that's an important relationship, one that will build over time. And as you say, as they get older, they spend more and more and more time with TV. Mm. But I don't think we should abandon them. I think that would be to the absolute detriment, to be honest. I think we, we need to be providing content that's appealing to them. And yeah, they, they've always been a challenge. They've been a challenge for every media. Yeah. Um, and Good. always will be. Fair. Nigel? Yeah, um, and this, to me, this is a great example of where Jill's TAN data comes up trumps because so many of the, the attitudes towards youth and TV come from qualitative discussions with youth who, who will tell you that you know they don't watch TV. But we know from um, TAM Island's data that the, the youth are in the audience watching telly. And very often when, when you speak anecdotally to young people, they don't tell you that they sat with their mum and watched mm. um, Dancing with the Stars. 
They don't tell you that they sat down with their dad and watched football on the telly. So they, they won't, in um, qualitative research, tell you about all the times they sat as a family in a group yeah. context and, and watched TV. But we know from looking at uh, the TAM data that, that youth people, they are in the audience, not as much as adults. But, right. you know, when we look back, I'm older than Jill, she's being very humble. And uh, so, you know, I, as the old person, I can remember when I was 16, I stopped watching telly with my parents, stopped watching telly. I went up into my room, I made mixtapes on the cassette, got miserable. And then after a while, discovered girls and beer and spent the rest of the time in the pub. And, mm. I, and, and exactly to your point, there comes a point in your life, the rhythms turn again. The next thing I know, I'm sitting on a sofa with a baby in my arms, watching telly for 12 hours, trying to yeah. get the thing to sleep. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, life is circular. And, and your point at the beginning, the, the youth have always been very fickle around TV. They put in, put out. They tell you they're not watching, but they are. Yeah. Um, so so let, let's always work off the hard numbers. And, and um, yeah. you know, TAM produce numbers that show us when and where the, the youth audiences are there. They are there, um, and they always come back to us. But yeah. we shouldn't we shouldn't take it for granted. You know, we do have to continually refresh the schedules. There has to be programming as well across audiences as well as youth audiences. I accept that, but I still think that I would still argue that the broadcasters it takes a disproportionate amount of their time. They put too much effort on it. Do you ha- I'm not saying ignore them. I'm just saying don't try and force the behaviour change that is that has never previously worked. And I know TV is doing quite well, but like in the last five years, younger under. 35s are down like 30% in view and so and over 55s is up so I think they'd be better off going after serving maybe a TV should be 30 plus 25 plus medium but you're not going to concede on that we'll agree to disagree on that one yeah. um, just in terms of like I, I, every business is tough at the moment but like I think if I was a broadcaster I'd be utterly depressed at the moment because like it can be a little bit overwhelming trying to say how do you compete looking at like Netflix have huge budgets Facebook are only dipping their toe in the water Amazon run content as a sideline business, little pet project, like sign up for free delivery and we throw in all this free content, like this extra stuff, like that's depressing that they can, that they can have a kind of an add on, a peripheral business to basically deliveries and and have the content that they have. So it's quite a daunting task when you look at the the competition that's here and that's about to come. Uh, It's it's about to get a lot worse. Amazon throwing in a bit of Premier League, sports quite interesting. I mean, how do you actually compete against that? Uh, JL, I'll start with you on this one. How do you compete if you're a little old RTE? What do you do? How do you try and fight against these people? Well, again, I think if you you look at the data, you see what, what performs well and what do they have, I suppose, competitive advantage in over those huge players and that's Irish content you know and producing Irish content that's what performs best across all Irish broadcasters and even if you look at you know Channel 4 and Sky look at the, at the you know the, the success of Dairy Girls here mm. um, so Irish content can be produced by Irish broadcasters and is unbeatable you know so I definitely think that that's where they have massive competitive advantage and they do invest an awful lot in in home produced content which is great for the industry as a whole and yes it's really challenging to be up against those big global players but it also means that it raises everybody's game and i think if we look at the production values that are out there i mean if you look at the production values of normal people which i suppose is, is such a great example of the of the moment you know, it's phenomenal to see that level of quality coming out of mm. the market. And, you know, so I think it raises everybody's game. They definitely have a competitive edge with Irish content. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's, mm. it's no, a battlefield to stay in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nigel, do you want to? I agree. If you look at um, 
the the TAM equivalent numbers from from every country in Europe, the, the content type um, that dominates the schedules all the time um, is the locally produced or your national content for, for that market. Uh, and and when we look at the the quality of TV making that, that goes on in Ireland, you know you, you have the capacity to make unbelievable TV there uh, and export great TV. The, it's not to say you you you, know, you, you take our eye off the ball, but locally made and Irish content could and should dominate the schedules right. yeah. because it's what local people want. It, even you know I, I joke about this with with friends at RTE about rugby coverage. You know, sport is an incredibly local thing. We can watch the same game. But the you know people in Ireland do not want to see the same coverage that I see. They don't want to see the yeah. same camera angles. They don't want to see yeah. the same hear the same commentary. So even something where we're watching exactly the same video, the production, the overlays, and the yeah. presentation of it is incredibly local. Yeah. So um, and I, so I think that's one of the great strengths of TV in that it, it, it talks to the heart of the audience in a, in a very very understanding way. So RTE's great strength. Is it understands the Irish audience? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a problem in the fact. In fact, we are overexposed to amazing content. So I mean, and people are, are quite unforgiving. A viewer watching TV is not going to say, "Oh, sure, I, I understand." Or you don't have the same budgets as as HBO when they're showing Game of Thrones. So when you're watching it, you kind of forget that Or have much smaller budgets, but we still expect that. Like we're very unforgiving if things are badly produced. You, you see it in the Irish versions of the franchise um, reality TVs, they get slated, and it's done a really good job. I think Dance with the Stars. Lo- I mean, it's not my bag, but it lo- it's it's produced well. It's up to a certain standard, but quite often they're not. And I think people forget that you know they're unforgiving. I suppose the best way to do because because we're spoiled we expect those standards now because that's what we see and it's tough i guess um, yeah. we do and i suppose it is but i think you know i i think a, a brilliant example of kind of uniquely irish content was inside the k i don't know if, if you saw that day so saw like, a bit of it yeah it was, was great just amazing tv you know to, yeah. to see that that side of our society it was incredible it was brilliant uh, yeah. and it was you couldn't stop watching it, you know. So I think we're very good. We absolutely have the capability to produce mm. fantastic content. And at the end of the day, as has always been the case, content is king. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, Irish content is is the king of things. Yeah. Um, I, I do think you have this extra complication, um, and we we can't ignore the fact that the incredible success of Irish talent on British television um, makes this weird competitor pop up. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, for some reason, whether it's whether it's news, current affairs, entertainment, um, acting, whatever, uh, the you know, Irish talent is does incredibly well on British TV. So you end up with this stuff coming out of the UK with recognisable faces and recognisable talent as a, as an extra competitor. Hmm. So you know, yeah, I, I personal, I mean, I would love to see RTE and BBC do more stuff together. I know yeah. it's politically fraught, mm-hmm. um, but you know, the, the UK is, is full of Irish people. Yeah. You know? A hand up here, so yeah, um, yeah. I, I just believe that that we could play to our strengths more um, if we turned that opportunity into into something we did together. I, I just I don't I, I think it's wrong for the UK channel to to compete against the Irish channels the way they do. It's just not fair. Yeah, so. yeah. I think co-ops is the way forward in terms of even for content with Netflix coming in and buying whatever they want, cherry picking whatever they want. There's been lots of innovation from a user point of view in terms of content. What, what there hasn't been lots of innovation in is in terms of the advertising models. So, um, Nigel, I'm going to get your view on this. The spot model, um, product placement has been around forever. It seems to me it's, it's complete, like, finger in the air. It's Wild West. Don't know if it's going to work or not. You know, I think it works well when you leverage it, like, tag um, watches, when you activate your association with James Bond in 
above the line campaign it works quite well but other than that I don't know are there any innovations happening like why don't we see more green screen type of things with the opportunity for local brands to drop products in is there is that ever going to happen or has there been much innovation am I just not seeing enough of it what's what's your view on that yeah, I mean, there's been various technologies trialled over the last few years that have looked at doing exactly that. The um, and so we've seen technologies that can put a, a poster in the in the in the back room of a of a scene in a soap, and you know somebody in the UK sees that scene, right. they see a particular poster. If someone in Ireland sees that scene, they see a different poster. Okay, and and so technically, we we've seen technologies arrive which could do that. But the big caveat with all of these things is. is scaling the opportunity without um, creating this, this massive headache. And it, it just appears that most of the opportunities that have been looked at and discussed as either complements or replacements to the spot ad model are, are just too time-consuming time right. and, and um, complicated and difficult to measure and difficult to manage. So there have been lots of technical trials, and they've all looked good. But when, at the end of the day, if you're a media agency, you, know, you have to deliver volume and value to your, mm-hmm. uh, to your advertisers uh, these are just stunts that, right, that yeah. and trick play and, and little things around the edges that will never really replace the weight of a of a major campaign. Mm. Yeah, and that, and also we it's one of those things we don't say enough. People hate bad advertising. They hate badly targeted advertising. Yeah. But we never say the other thing. Actually, people love advertising. Yeah. Whether it's good and it's well targeted and it's entertaining and delivers value. People will talk about advertising in a pub. They'll yeah. show each other some advertising on a YouTube channel. So yeah, we, we should focus on. On you know, when advertising is great, it absolutely nails it. Yeah, I I I said this before. I, I wrote this before. I go. There's something nice about watching TV where I feel like someone's not carefully curating every ad I see. I'm kind of and I'm weird because I I like serendipity. I will buy things that I'm never supposed to be buying. Like stuff that's clearly not targeting me. I find interesting. I'm just so I'm a television advertisers dream because um, and it's just nice so I, I kind of like that that about TV advertising we talked about sport quite a bit being the backbone of broadcasters traditional broadcasters Sky built a business on it BT built a business on it it's fair to say that the, the big boys haven't really got into that area and it's probably because the very short shelf life of it but do you think I mean a- Amazon dabbled a little bit do you think Nigel do you think we see Netflix Amazon Apple or Facebook go after sport why wouldn't they if there's an audience to be had why wouldn't they they could truly they have the budgets they could buy a World Cup or something like that and actually yeah, no, uh, Amazon they had that dabble with the Premier yeah League. around Christmas they had a couple of games yeah yeah no, they had they had um, 18 games hmm. um, and they played it out on Amazon Prime now I'm, I'm embarrassed I don't know if that played out in, in Ireland or, or in it, in the UK. Well, no it wasn't in Ireland it didn't happen in Ireland no yeah. Well, they they just renewed that deal, and they just announced that they're going to be running Premiership football in an app that they bought called Twitch. Now, I'm, I'm sure most people listening know what Twitch is, but just in case yeah. some don't, it's it's an app that was about live streaming for gamers. But it's in, it's Amazon bought it and have expanded its capabilities. So they just announced they're going to be running Premiership football in Twitch okay. and in Amazon Prime. And the interesting thing about Twitch is that it's got an ad model. They right, ran yeah. their football in Amazon Prime and weren't able to um, insert ads. Right. So they sold a few ads that they burnt into the file, but they weren't intelligent, they weren't inserted, and, and yeah, they were just really just sponsorship ads, not anything else. On Twitch, it's got a full ad platform um, ready to go. So we're expecting a, um, a further evolution of what Amazon are doing around Premiership when it, when it rolls out next right. season um, on Twitch. But I think your point is right. I, I think we will end up seeing... One of the global tech giants um, buy out one of the global sporting events. And it'll right, be a yeah. World Cup and Olympics yeah. 
um, something of that scale where they have the capability of managing it on a, um, yeah. a global basis. My suspicion is they will still need a local broadcaster to do some of the coverage. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And the whole, which I think is another development, the whole DTC. I mean, DTC props up in everything. Every industry has been disrupted by DTC. But we've seen quite a lot of it in the content space. And Disney, um, you know, famously said they launched, whose timing is everything. They couldn't have launched at a better time. But they were kind of doing a hybrid model at the start. So they were still broadcasting with it on TV and wasn't, I never never knew the point of that. But um, you just sent me an email earlier on saying they've announced that they're going to shut down the UK channel. So that's Definitely a model. When you think about sport, could you ever see, like I know some of them in the States do it, but could you see the Premier League, for example, going DTC and, and taking those rights back? Or is it just a case that the Premier League, they already make so much money. I don't know how much money you can squeeze out of the Premier League anymore. They've done a brilliant job. Uh, it's phenomenal. It must be completely saturated now. But when you look at Amazon, um, Man City documentary, when you look at Sunderland Until I Die on Netflix, there's quite a lot more to sport than live sport. There's storytelling, those narratives. There's a lot of it. You could fill hundreds of channels with that. Uh, Michael Jordan, you know, that's basketball. There's so many stories, brilliant stories. If you were advising the Premier League, would you advise them to go DTC? What You know, the tech, the headaches, whatever that would cause. But is that an option, do you think? Why wouldn't they do it, I think? I struggle to see how a, um, a rights-owned channel, so when you're a, a rights-holder-owned channel like Premier League owning their own channel, how they can... In the, in the current term, build a big enough audience mm. because you know the, the great strength of running football on a broadcast channel is, is the cross promotion and the promotion the build up for the events. So there's an awful lot of work that a broadcast channel is still doing to make that content famous enough yeah. to me to, to want to watch it. But that's not to say there's not a lot more that can happen. We were looking at the the, the coverage last year when, when you support a second tier team like we do over here. So I support Fulham. So that you know, it's rarely on the telly, and Fulham's got its own web channel that you're not allowed to watch um, in the UK if they're at right. home, and all sorts of rules. And and um, I've got two adult sons, and we were reflecting uh, earlier in the season how hard it was for us to pay for some content. Mm. We were sitting here saying, "Why is the Premiership not taking more money off yeah. us?" And and we're struggling to, to see the product. Oh, so not Premiership, the Championship. Why is the football league not taking more money off us? Yeah. And and it struck us as very odd that we were sitting there as willing customers wanting to consume more, willing to pay more, wanting to use various devices to access it. And, yeah. and in this modern day and age, we and couldn't, couldn't, you couldn't do it. I was going to say, so yeah, so I think there's a load more work that can be done by the rights holders and the broadcasters yeah. so to, get, to get product variation out of the market, you know, different packages and, and yeah, all those yeah. kind of things. There's more money on the table than the, they're leaving it. Yeah, I think it's a good, like you just, you just see last weekend, I think there's a huge deal made about the first ever three o'clock kickoff in the Premier League ever broadcast on TV because it's this, uh, this idea that if it's on telly, no one's going to go to the game. And it's like, it's it's complete nonsense because it's not about actually watching it. It's the occasion. The fans will still go. It's not going to have any impact on it. We're running out of time a little bit, but I just want to close off with one thing because we've talked a lot about TV. I'm a fan of TV. I still hear this narrative and it's a popular one. And I understand everyone has their, you know, their, you have to look at who's saying what because everyone has their, their kind of agenda. But this, oh, nobody's watching TV. I hear clients saying that nobody's watching TV. I have a job to persuade clients sometimes that, you know, TV's the right thing to do. So I've seen loads of evidence, econometrics, brand tracking studies. How is this still a rhetoric that's going on that nobody watches TV? Despite all the evidence, why do we have, why do people still have this opinion? Jill, let's start with you on that one. I think it's such a, a challenge and a frustration, to be honest, because all of the evidence points to the massive effectiveness of TV. Yeah. And it seems to 
just have been this kind of popular narrative that grew out of shiny new things coming into Mm. the market 15, 20 years ago and grabbing the attention, but not necessarily the audiences. And I know you struggle with it. I think that uh, most agencies would would have a similar story. And it is a matter of education from our point of view, I think, in just ensuring we get that message out there. Um, and yeah. indeed, that, that's, I'm sure you've seen our ad on TV. I have, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Referencing all the great ads on it TV. It feels a little bit like preaching to the converted, though, Jill. I mean, running ads on telly to say telly's great. I was kind of going, maybe you should do an outdoor campaign or something, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but I think the fact that people saw it, noticed it, talked about it, you know, that that in itself shows people, oh, yeah, and actually I recognize all those Mm. ads. Yeah. So, yes, I do watch TV and I do notice the ads and they do have an effect. Um, And that was the idea behind the ad was to say, you know, to jolt their memory and go, hang on a minute, you're watching this. Yeah. that's what we need to do and, and do more of because all of the evidence that the truth is that TV advertising is the most yeah. effective. It um, drives the most profitability for brands, you know, and, yeah, and I yeah. know I'm telling you everything you already know, but it's up to us as an industry to really educate the market and make sure that message stays out yeah. there. Nigel, what do you think? Because well, I hear it's, hard, it's a hard one to argue. A client says, ah, I just don't think anyone's watching TV anymore. I mean, it's, a, it's an emotional argument and like, you can't win it with somebody who has that view. So, Nigel, why do you think that still is um, very I, common held? I, I, I'm, unfortunately, for the benefit of the show, I agree again with, entirely with what, what Jill said and, and again, would, would add some more, more things on it. I think that the television industry was very slow to innovate when the internet first arrived in our life in all of its various forms. Uh, and it was it was very slow to introduce uh, functionality and differences in content formats. You know, the, the the web first became a thing in in some of our lives back in '93, and it wasn't until 2006, 2007, 2008 we saw our first pl- um, on-demand player from the broadcaster. So it took a decade for the television industry to respond. Mm. By which point there was this perception that it was a kind of a slower, older industry. Yeah. And you know, and therefore, if you're a young person coming into media. You know, to go and work on something that involves Facebook and Google and YouTube and all that kind of yeah. stuff, it's, it's sexy and interesting and, and wonderful, whereas telly still feels as though it's it's in the dark ages. Yeah. But on, on top of that, one of the problems is most people who work in TV have no idea how amazing TV is. You know, we, we're forever, and Jill will attest to this, we're forever doing workshops where we're actually showing the TV industry um, just how technically clever TV is nowadays yeah, yeah. With, with IP streaming and, and yeah. all those kind of things. Um, and there's a certain snippiness amongst senior television people about technology. As right. though, you know, it's as though it's trade. And, and so we, we find very few real cheerleaders in the television industry right. who, are, who are willing to stand up and say what an amazing, advanced, technically advanced, interactive, varied media television is for an advertiser. I just spent the morning talking about addressable TV and the, the convergence of internet tech for advertising and television tech. Over the next five, 10 years, the convergence of the two technology cultures around TV is going to be really interesting. So, so I do right. think the whole television industry needs to stand up and, and cheer for its own product more 
yeah. and, and be able to, to articulate how amazing and interesting and variable and flexible it is as a tool for advertisers to use. Yeah, and it's probably a case that just in some things, because it's been around for a while, it's just not the shiny new thing, which I mentioned is a problem with our industry. Congratulations, this is now the longest episode that I've ever done. I knew it was going to be because it was just interesting. And I could, you know what? I could talk about it for another hour, but we won't. Um, we got to wrap it up. So thanks a million, Nigel. Thanks for joining me. And thanks, Jill. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you're all staying safe. So we are back in two weeks' time. So thanks for listening and thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions and thanks to Kira and Andrea on sound. Bye-bye. This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions.